If you haven't been following along for the first two weeks, our theme for the Sundays of this Lent uh, is uh, really just a, a, a Luther for Lent uh, idea of looking back to Luther and his uh, unique uh, kind of insights and way of expressing those insights uh, to help enliven our Lenten journey of discipleship, of uh, growing closer and closer in our walk with God. And uh, Luther helps us with that in a number of ways. Uh, one of the ways we're uh, doing that is going back to the, the, the lectionary used by Luther, the historic one-year lectionary, which may result in having different lessons than family members when you talk about the, the sermon with them uh, uh, later on this week. But uh, today's focus uh, for the third Sunday of Lent is what I'm calling VS Day, Victory Over Satan. Uh, as we've seen throughout the first couple of weeks, really comes to a head here uh, with Jesus' victory over Satan, uh, how he conquers and drives out the devils, uh, being the highlight of uh, the gospel message, really, uh, in a number of ways. Uh, we see that in our gospel lesson uh, with Jesus driving out the demons, uh, and Luther, uh, in his sermon on this text in 1534, highlighted how people dealt with that in surprisingly and yet unsurprisingly different ways. Uh, one uh, would be simple joy and relief. Uh, another would be enmity and accusations. And a third group responds with kind of cautious reservations. And we'll look a little bit more at each of these groups and at Christ's response to them uh, to guide us in how we respond to Christ's deliverance from sin, death, and the devil for us today. Well, the first group uh, is uh, characterized by joy and relief. Uh, the uh, appropriate and in some ways most obvious response when Jesus frees us from our great enemy, uh, the devil. Uh, the text highlights how s the people marveled uh, when Jesus dro uh, drove out uh, this demon. And it's no surprise that they would. When you think about uh, the, the power and uh, evil of the devil, uh, that Jesus had shown the power to expel. Uh, it should be like Paris being liberated from the Nazis or the the wall falling in Berlin, uh, an event of, hey, let's throw a parade. Let's throw a celebration. Our great enemy has been defeated and driven out. Uh, like the, the people in Paris back in World War II who, who were celebrating, lining the streets, cheering the, the allied armies as they rolled into town, uh, having defeated the Nazis and driven them out. It was a day of such great celebration that uh, just back in 2019, they actually did it again to celebrate the 75th anniversary of that day. People were donning period clothes to go out into the streets uh, and uh, reenact that celebration of 1944. The firemen went up on the, the Eiffel Tower to... Uh, release a, a tricolor French flag just like those 75 years before had put out the uh, 
beautiful tricolor made of bedsheets sewn together. So thankful were they to be able to tear down that Nazi swastika that hung there for four years. The deliverance from that oppression uh, was, of course, reason for great celebration. We'd see the people of Israel actually behave similarly when they thought Jesus was delivering them from the Romans. On Palm Sunday, waving their palms, spreading their cloaks on the ground, partying, celebrating, Jesus is driving out our great enemy. Little did they know that their great enemy wasn't actually Rome. In their confusion, they'd spotted the wrong enemy and were not focused on what Christ was actually doing. But that would have been the appropriate response. Now, it wasn't the response of many of the people, though. And some took an aggressively different response. As we see, uh, some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Uh, They actually accused their deliverer of being in league with the tyrant, uh, uh, an oppressive uh, power himself. And it kind of makes sense when you think about it from the perspective of how atheists would look at it. Because from the atheist perspective, any ruler who challenges my authority is a bad ruler. It doesn't matter. Well, he's driving out the old one. Well, if he's going to take the same place himself, if he's going to claim to be my Lord and God and try and tell me what to do, he's just a different enemy. The atheism is really essentially spiritual anarchy in claiming I'm going to do what I'm going to do and nobody's going to tell me what to do. I don't care if he's benevolent rather than a tyrant. If he claims to be my Lord and King, I don't want any part of him. He's just another one of the oppressive set. Uh, The atheistic perspective is opposed to any ruler, any Lord, any God, and won't have Jesus any sooner than they'd have the devil. That same attitude can actually invade the church, though, even though none of us would identify ourselves as atheists. The attitude of works righteousness, where I look to myself for salvation, take pride in my own works, and depend on my own ability for safety, provision, and protection, is really setting myself up again as Lord and God, and rejecting any attempt to put a power over me. And the third group really does the same thing, but in a more sneaky manner. The third group, uh, in order to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven, our text says. Seems like, well, all right, maybe they're, they're just looking for a little more information. And maybe they are, but whether it's genuine or not, the ultimate effect is really one that's not that different uh, from atheism. 
It's just doing the same thing in a subtler and in some ways even more effective way by retaining that uh, place of authority enough to sit in judgment and say, well, Jesus, let's see if you really deserve the position. Uh, Let me make up my mind whether I want to hire you as God or not. Well, they're under the guise, perhaps, of being open to the idea of Jesus as Lord. You've really just subordinated him uh, to make him an employee, not a Lord at all, but a, a serf, a peasant, or a slave. Uh, rationalism and charismatic theology, again, can do the same thing within the church if we're not on the lookout against it. Rationalism says, if it makes sense to me, all right, but you got to prove to me it makes sense. You're telling me this is his body and blood? That doesn't make sense. Nope. Uh, you're, you're telling me that uh, God is triune, three and one at the same time? Nope, nope, no, that's not. Uh, you're telling me Jesus did these miracles that are against the laws of nature? That, no, no. Uh, I'll take the other stuff, but not that. You're telling me Jesus uh, tells me my sin is wrong? I'll go, murder is wrong, sure, but not, not my sin. When we sit in judgment and determine that it has to make sense to us or fit our ideas, again, subordinating Jesus, not receiving him as Lord. Of course, charismatic theology does literally the exact same thing these uh, people in the text do. You better give us a sign, God. Give us a sign. Give us some sort of manifestation, some sort of experience, some sort of miracle, prove it. Then we'll believe on the basis of you meeting our demands, fulfilling our expectations. Under the guise of worship, it's really dictating to God. And it's a sneaky way of Again, taking God off his throne that is ultimately just uh, as much of an enmity and approach as what we saw before, just smarter about it. Like people say, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. This approach says, Yeah, Jesus, why don't you come and, yeah, I'll give you this special job that you just sit here and you be ready for me to ask you what I need from you and be there and and I'll just go over here and do my thing. It's uh, giving Jesus an important job to do to keep him out of your business. Just like if you're a a history or politics buff, the Thomas Platt, the uh, New York uh, political boss, Uh, When Teddy Roosevelt as governor uh, and his reforms started to make life difficult for Platt, you know what Platt did? He had Roosevelt appointed vice president to get him out of his hair. Uh, That's the same thing we can do uh, with Jesus. Hey, Jesus, why don't you be vice president? Really special job. Doesn't actually keep me from doing what I want to do either. That way I can keep my eye on. See, Jesus, though, 
denounces both those attempts to maintain our independence. First, he exposes their foolishness by highlighting that every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and a divided household falls. If Satan is also divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Again, not to be too much of a history lesson, but Abraham Lincoln famously referred to that house divided in his speech regarding the the separation of the union. That uh, as we saw in practical terms, a a house divided just doesn't work. kingdom divided against itself will fall. And the the devil, unfortunately for us, is not so stupid as to go around battling himself. Uh, That his kingdom is very well organized and unified. And he is not going to work at counter purposes to himself. Uh, Satan is not as dumb as we may like to think. And he will be laser focused on uh, executing our our oppression. We can't look to him to cast himself out. Jesus goes on then in verse 19 to expose their hypocrisy. Uh, When he says, if I uh, cast out demons by Beelzebub, who do your sons cast, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. He points out to them, reminds them, you know, it's funny, you only object to exorcisms when it's not you doing it. When you do it, oh, this is a sign of power, sign of greatness. When anyone else does it, it doesn't count. A little bit of a double standard. The only purpose for their objection, the only purpose of their thought process is to maintain their central place Uh, as lords of their own lives. But it doesn't work that way. Jesus establishes and uh, exhibits uh, the the inevitable conclusion of his action as he says that if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Uh, The kingdom of God has come upon you. And you are now subject to his kingdom. Luther didn't deal with that aspect of the theme as much in 1534, but he dealt with it extensively in his correspondence with Erasmus of Rotterdam, uh, previously, which had been published in uh, 1525 uh, under the title of The Bondage of the Will. It's an Excellent read in Lutheran theology if you haven't read it before, Bondage of the Will. Uh, But in that work, he actually quoted today's gospel lesson as well uh, from just a few verses later when he says, The truth of the matter is rather as Christ says, He who is not with me is against me. He doesn't say, He who is not with me is not against me either, but merely neutral. In another uh, occasion, actually, where the disciples saw someone casting out demons in Jesus' name and objected to it because he wasn't one of them, Jesus supported him, saying, whoever is not against me is for me. On both occasions and from both angles, he made it clear that this is 
an either-or situation with no neutral, independent middle road available for us to set ourselves up as our own kings and lords. Either you're under the devil or you're under God. You can't be an independent, neutral party. As he would say later on in the bondage of the will, for there is no middle kingdom between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, which are ever at war with each other. Now you can think of that in a very practical, literal way. I'm imagining two superpower, uh, how two superpowers at war with each other, how it works to be a tiny, weak little nation in between those. Doesn't usually work very well. In fact, you think of the role of Belgium or Poland in World War II. There's basically involved being trampled by one army and trampled by the other army. That being a a weak power in between great powers just doesn't lead to independence and autonomy. In fact, the example of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament shows that very clearly. That when Israel wasn't clinging to God and uh, holding on to him as part of his kingdom the consequences were that they were left to the earthly kingdoms where they were batted around between world superpowers, where Egypt trampling them on one hand and Babylon or Assyria trampling them on the other. There is no middle kingdom, no neutral independence for us, only slavery under the devil or freedom in the lordship of Jesus Christ. And today's gospel lesson actually goes on to build further on that as well. You've probably heard the quote before, nature abhors a vacuum. It's not a Luther quote. It's actually attributed to Aristotle. Uh, I used to use it to try and get out of vacuuming. Uh, It (laughs) doesn't usually work for that. But there is some truth to it, Uh, and even a a spiritual truth uh, that we just read in our gospel lesson. When the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and not finding any. It says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it swept and vacuumed and put in order. Then it goes and takes along seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. There's an empty place in our hearts that will be filled either with the Holy Spirit or something else that's decidedly less holy. We are not autonomous beings. We cannot be neutrally independent. Something will fill that power vacuum over us. Something will fill that worship vacuum inside of us and tie us either to Christ or to the devil. It's, of course, our goal and desire, therefore, to embrace the reign of Christ, to not try to go it alone, to be uh, Switzerland Christians, 
but to be fully and completely on board in the kingdom of Christ. And the the way our text wraps up uh, actually uh, puts a a nice uh, period on that, highlighting uh, to us how that works. As the, the woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. Basically, blessed is the one who's in authority over you, Jesus. Blessed is the one who can bring you into being and be responsible for you and bring you under their, their house and into their life and the, on their terms. Jesus responded, rather, blessed are those who hear the word of the Lord and keep it. This, of course, we could go at length here more into the, the whole Mariology of the, the blessed are you, mother of God, and all of that. And Jesus actually says, no, blessed are those who hear the word of the Lord and keep it. Uh, but as pertains to our conversation today, the point of it is the blessing of being those who hear God's word, who are delivered by him and hold on to that gift of freedom under him that he gives us. Uh, the word in the Greek that is translated keep here, uh, that to keep the word of God, we sometimes associate immediately with obedience, but that's just an implication of it. It means to hold on to, uh, to zealously guard and watch over. Uh, that famous text you probably remember from Christmas that there were uh, shepherds in the hills by night keeping watch over their sheep. It's that same word, actually, that the shepherds were keeping watch over their sheep, uh, just as we're called to keep God's word, to be attentively focused on it, uh, to hold on to it and make sure that nothing would take it from us, that we hold on to the word of God because there is the blessing that delivers us from the power of sin, death, and the devil. God's word is the the blessing that grants us freedom and deliverance from the the powers of temptation that would destroy us. And when we hear his word, hold it sacred and, and gladly hear and learn it, we should hold on to it with the same joy and uh, relief as the people of Paris celebrating the Allied armies driving out the Nazis. Because that is what the Word of God does for us, and even more. Driving out the devil, driving away his lies and temptations with the truth of God's powerful Word that brought light to the universe and created all things and brings light and life to us and creates in us uh, a new life and a new hope that will last forever. May that peace is beyond all understanding. Keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus until the day of his glorious return. Amen.